like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. <clears throat> in our study through Nehemiah, we have come to a significant moment. It's recorded in chapter 6 and verse 15, where we read, So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul. Now the word so is used by Nehemiah throughout his journal as a kind of mile marker. Back in chapter 2 and verse 4, he wrote, So I prayed to the God of heaven. And then in chapter 2 and verse 11, he says, So I came to Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 18. So they put their hands to the good work. Chapter 4, verse 6. So we built the wall to half its height. Chapter 4, verse 21. So, we carried on the work with half of them holding spears. And now in chapter 6 and verse 15, so the wall was completed. Now, you might expect this to be the end of Nehemiah's diary. After all, he has accomplished what he set out to do. He has rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. But as you can see, we're only halfway through the book of Nehemiah. And so, rather than marking the end... The completion of the walls actually mark a new beginning because a city is more than walls and gates and houses. A city is people. And having reconstructed the walls in the first half of the book, Nehemiah will now tell us how he re-instructed the people in the last half of the book. And this is where it really gets complicated because it's a lot easier to work with bricks than it is to work with people. This world would be wonderful if it weren't for people, wouldn't it? I think it was a great theologian, Snoopy, who said, I love humanity, it's people I can't stand. And Frederick the Great said, the more I get to know people, the more I love my dog. In the first half of the book, the people existed for the walls, now the walls must exist for the people. And so Nehemiah's work is far from over. It's just beginning. And our passage this morning is really transitional in nature. It marks the transition from bricks to people. The transition from building the wall to using the wall. And as we see Nehemiah making that transition, there are some important principles that we can derive from the process. Because if anything has become clear about Nehemiah... It is that he was committed to the work of God and he was successful at doing the work of God. And in our passage this morning, we're going to uncover some of the reasons for that success. And I would like to highlight seven characteristics that were evident in Nehemiah as he did the work of God that we need to apply to our own lives. First of all, he was dependent. And that's in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Notice those verses. <clears throat> So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul in 52 days. And it came about when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Now despite all the obstacles and despite all the opposition, the walls have been rebuilt in record time. And because of that, we read that the enemies lost their confidence. 
Literally, they have fallen in their own eyes. They are feeling very small. The wind has gone out of their sails. Their jaws have literally dropped to the ground as they see what has happened. Now, why are they so amazed? And why are they so defeated? Well, because these Jews who had been crushed and rooted out by Nebuchadnezzar are not only back in the land of Palestine, but now they have rebuilt their capital city to be an impregnable fortress. This city, which laid in ruins for 140 years, has been rebuilt in 52 days. This city, which has been the laughingstock of the area, is now nothing to laugh about. And when they lift their jaws up off the ground, what do they say? They say, that Nehemiah is an incredible leader. Those Jews are amazing people. No, that's not what they say. Their opinion of Nehemiah and the Jews hasn't changed since back in chapter 4 and verse 2 when they said that the Jews were feeble and the job couldn't be done. But when they see this fortress built in 52 days by feeble people, they say, God is at work. You see, when the, when the walls got rebuilt, God got the glory even from their enemies. Now, why was that? Well, I want to suggest to you that it was because Nehemiah was dependent upon God. And I want to suggest two things that made him dependent upon God. Number one, Nehemiah was honest about who he was. Nehemiah wasn't pretending to be someone he wasn't. He was honest, he was humble, he recognized his own weakness, and that's why we read throughout this book that he was constantly calling upon God. He had no personal strengths. He had no personal qualifications that made him the man to do this job. He had dishpan hands. He was a cupbearer with a hard hat on but he was calling on the great and awesome God. He was dependent upon God. And you see, the first thing that made him dependent upon upon God was that he recognized who he was. And that's always a key in unleashing the power of God. What did Jesus say in John chapter 15 and verse 5? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, how many of us believe that? We say, well, God chose me to do this job because I'm fairly qualified. Think again. You say, God God and I are endeavoring together in this work and it's kind of a 50-50 deal. No. Apart from Him, you can do zero. And you see, when I am really honest about that, then God can begin to work because I will depend upon Him. Paul emphasized that same truth in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9 when he said, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now, when is the last time you bragged about your weaknesses? say, well, people don't do that. We, we brag about our strengths and we try to cover up our weaknesses. But you see, when we do that, we miss out on the power of God because as Paul said earlier in that same verse, God's power is perfected in weakness. So it's only when we do a 180 
It's only when we stop relying on our own strengths and start recognizing our own weaknesses that God's power is unleashed. And that's why Paul said in the very next verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 10, when I am, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am honest enough and humble enough to admit that I can't, that's when God can. And so Nehemiah was dependent because, number one, he was honest about who he was. Secondly, Nehemiah attempted something that he couldn't accomplish. He attempted something that, humanly speaking, was impossible. He attempted something that he was absolutely bound to fail at unless God bailed him out. And isn't that the other key to unleashing the power of God? Why, when he was already outnumbered four to one, did God tell Gideon to send 99% of his army home? Why did God tell Joshua to simply walk around the city of Jericho? Why did God tell Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 to let the choir lead them into battle against Moab and Ammon? Well, the reason is because God loves it when we step out in faith. God loves it when we trust him to do the impossible. God loves it when we give him the opportunity to shine. When it's the bottom of the ninth and your team is down by three runs and the bases are loaded and there's two outs and you're on deck, how many of you want to be up at the plate? Well, that's sort of dependent on whether you can hit or not, right? I mean, for some of us, if we're, we know we're up, we say, who, me? I don't want to be up there. But for the person who can hit the ball out of the park, he says, this is what I've been dreaming about. This is my opportunity. This is the scenario I've had playing in my mind all along. I want to get up there and get the chance. Why? Because that scenario creates the opportunity for you to shine. You see, God is looking for the scenario. He's looking for us to step out in faith so we paint the scenario so that he can shine. Let me ask you something. What are you attempting for God that gives him the opportunity to shine? What are you stepping out in faith to attempt that only he can accomplish? What are you attempting for God that is absolutely bound to fail unless he bails you out? You see, Nehemiah was attempting to do the impossible. And because he did, God was able to shine. In fact, he was able to shine so clearly that even Nehemiah's enemies were saying, God did this. What has God done lately in your life that even your enemies are saying, that was God's work? Well, that will only happen when I admit my weakness and when I attempt the impossible, because then, like Nehemiah, I will depend upon God. Second characteristic about the way Nehemiah did his work for God was that he was discerning, and that's in chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Notice verse 17. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. Now the walls are built, 
and Jerusalem is securely inside, but some in Judah are corresponding with the enemy. Some in Judah are being pen pals with Tobiah. You say, well, why would they do that? Well, look at verse 18. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Erah, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Many are obliged or obligated to Tobiah because he was in the family. Tobiah had married a Jewish wife, and his son had married a Jewish wife. In fact, if you'll notice, his son had married the daughter of Meshulam. Now, we read about Meshulam back in chapter 3. We read his name in verse 4 and also in verse 30. He was one of those individuals who had constructed two sections of the wall. Meshulam was a great worker. But what do we learn about Meshulam and his family in this passage? Though they helped build the walls, and though they were inside the walls, their loyalty was outside. They looked good, and they put on a good show, but when it came right down to it, they were taking their orders from the enemy. Now, that's not unique to Nehemiah's day. There are probably people sitting here this morning who look the part and play the part and put on a good show, but when it comes right down to it, you are married to the world. Your commitment is outside of the sphere of God. Now, what orders were they getting from the enemy? What was the strategy? Look at verse 19. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. The strategy was to try to get Nehemiah to soften his position toward Tobiah. And so they were hanging around Nehemiah and telling him about what a wonderful guy Tobiah was and telling him about all the good things that Tobiah was doing. He does so many good deeds. He's such a great, wonderful guy. And they're trying to get him to soften toward Tobiah. And meanwhile, they're taking everything that Nehemiah says and they're reporting it back to Tobiah in these letters that are going back and forth. But apparently the strategy didn't work. And the reason I say that is, if you notice the last phrase in verse 19, it says, then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. He tried this strategy for a while, having them soften up Nehemiah, maybe gaining some access to Nehemiah, and it finally didn't work, and so he just takes off his sheepskin and shows his teeth. And he goes back to trying to frighten Nehemiah, the strategy that he had tried earlier. Now, what do we learn about Nehemiah here? He was a man of discernment. Just because those that were speaking to him were the nobles of Judah, just because it was Meshulam who had worked so hard on the wall, Nehemiah doesn't swallow what he's hearing. He is a man of discernment. He looks at the truth and he evaluates what's being said and he weighs it and he counts it and he evaluates it and decides whether it's the truth of God. And that's very important for us to do. In fact, if we're going to accomplish the work of God, we have got to be discerning. Just because Satan loses the battle doesn't mean he leaves the field. He hangs around. Just because we get the walls built up doesn't mean he stays outside. He finds a way to get in. In Luke chapter 4, we read there that he is looking for an opportune time. 
And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we read that he disguises himself as an angel of light, and his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Just because someone stands in a church with all the amenities around and with a robe on and with the Bible open saying something does not mean that he is speaking the truth. And today that is Satan's greatest ploy. He he has his servants lined up like the servants of Christ, looking like servants of righteousness and leading people astray. And we've got to be careful. We've got to be discerning. Satan knows how to look spiritual. And so if you're going to resist him, you have to be men and women of discernment. Third characteristic, and that is that Nehemiah delegated authority. That's chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Notice, now it came about when the wall was rebuilt and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed that I put Hanani, my brother, and Hanani, the commander of the fortress in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Now, in these two verses, Nehemiah is appointing people. He's putting people in charge. He is delegating authority. And what does that tell us about Nehemiah? Well, two things. Number one, it tells us that if you want to accomplish the work of God, you've got to place other people in leadership. You cannot do the job alone. You have to be a team player. And Nehemiah was. Nehemiah had a job description to do, and yet he recruits others into leadership to accomplish the job. Second thing we learn from this is that if you want to accomplish the work of God, you've got to place the right people in leadership. See, Nehemiah doesn't just go out selecting people randomly. He doesn't just call for volunteers. He appointed them... He selected them. On what basis? Well, look at verse 2. Verse 2 tells us that he put two men in charge of Jerusalem. Very important responsibility. One was Hanai, his brother, who was mentioned back in chapter 1 and verse 2, whose character Nehemiah obviously knew. The other was Hananiah, whose qualifications are given at the end of verse 2. It says, Hananiah the commander of the fortress in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Now, Hananiah was the commander of the fortress. He was a military man. He obviously did his job well, but that is not what qualified him for leadership. What qualified him for leadership was that he was a faithful man and he feared God more than many. Many feared God. He feared God more. Now, those are spiritual qualifications. Nehemiah understood that you have to put the right people in leadership. Nehemiah understood that if you put the wrong people in leadership, they can tear down what God has already built up. And that's one of the tragedies today as we look around at the church. There are so many people in leadership who do not qualify spiritually for that leadership. We need to follow Nehemiah's pattern in delegating. Fourth characteristic about Nehemiah and the way he did the work of God was that he was defending chapter 7, verse 3. Then I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. 
Now, normally the gates of a city in that day were opened at dawn and they were closed at nightfall. But Nehemiah orders that extra precautions be taken. He says the gates are not to be opened until the sun is hot. That would be later in the morning. And even while the guards are there watching, they're to keep the gates closed and locked until they're necessary to be opened. And then the inhabitants of the city were to stand guard on the wall in front of their house. This is the first neighborhood watch. What's going on here? They're taking a defensive posture. Nehemiah knows that if God's people don't protect what God has accomplished, the enemy is going to come and take it over. And if we're going to accomplish the work of God, we have to have that same posture. That's why throughout the New Testament, we read phrases such as, be on your guard, be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Jesus said to us, watch and pray. Did you know that sometimes you're to pray with your eyes open? Jesus says, watch and pray. How do I watch and pray? I got my eyes open. I'm not just to pray, I'm to be watching because there's an enemy out there. These people stood outside their houses and they stood guard. And I think it's important for us to understand that we need to take precautions. We need to be defensive. We need to watch our houses. Don't just pray for your children. Watch. Watch what kind of movies they are watching. Pay attention to the kind of music that they're listening to. Watch what's going on in your home. We need to do the same thing in the church. We need to pray for the church. We need to watch. Because Paul warned us in Acts chapter 20 that when he left, grievous wolves would come in, not sparing the flock. We need to be watching. We need to be careful. We need to have a defensive posture. This is often an area that Christians neglect. God does a work, and we're so satisfied with what God has done that we just relax. We rest on our laurels, and we don't get defensive in defending the work of God. And of course, we've got many tragic examples around us to let us know that that has happened in the past. We simply have to look to the schools in our country. Schools like Harvard started out training men to be ministers of the gospel. What happened? Somebody stopped guarding. We've got seminaries in this country that until recently were true to the faith and now they're denying it. Why? Because those who should have been guarding are no longer guarding. We've got churches in this country that once preached the gospel that now have in their pulpits ministers who preach another gospel. Why? Because those who should have been guarding are not guarding. Nehemiah was committed to defending the work of God. And if we're going to do God's work God's way, we've got to be committed to defending it as well. Fifth characteristic of Nehemiah is that he was directed... And we see that in verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. Now, the walls have been built, and so Nehemiah looks around and he sees that they've got a problem. The city is big. The city is expansive. But the people are few. All the people have moved to the suburbs. When the walls were down, nobody wanted to live in Jerusalem because it was too risky, so they settled in the villages all around. So now they got the walls up, but there's very few people living in the city of Jerusalem. And so what is Nehemiah going to do? Verse 5, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. 
Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first in which I found the following record. Now, Nehemiah decides to, to do a census of the people. He needs to know who's who and who's living where so that he can repopulate the city of Jerusalem. Now, we're going to see really the completion of this concept when we come to chapter 11 because there, in verses 1 and 2, we find that Nehemiah had the people tithe themselves. In other words, a tenth of the people came back and lived in the city of Jerusalem. And this census has to do with that. He's getting all the names down, where they live, all the details, so that he can make a move to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. But at this point, we get to see how Nehemiah was directed to do that. It says in verse 5, God put it into my heart. Now let me ask you something. How do you know when God puts something into your heart? How do you know when you have a feeling in your heart that God wants you to do something, how do you know that that's God and not the pizza you ate last night? How do you know? Well, let me give you a principle, and it comes right out of this verse and many others, and that is that God will always validate His subjective leading with an objective verification. Nehemiah says, I feel that this is what God wants me to do in my heart. And then notice what it says next in verse 5. Then I found the book of the genealogy. Now, to understand what's going on here, we have to understand the history a little bit. Back in 536 B.C., Zerubbabel had led a group of exiles out of Persia and back to Jerusalem. And when he did, he made a record of the people. But that record has been lost. And Nehemiah doesn't even know that it exists. So he's getting ready to take a census. He's going to bring all the people together and count them and find out what family they came from and record all these things. And when he gets ready to do that, when he gets into the process of doing it, he finds this book in which it's already been done. And what's going on here? Well, when you are, have a dynamic prayer life like Nehemiah, and when you have a dynamic obedience life, like Nehemiah, the Spirit of God will move your heart to do certain things. And how do you know that it's the Spirit of God? Because God will always validate that subjective feeling with His objective evidence. In other words, there will always be something out there to let you know that this is the will of God. Nehemiah says, God put it in my heart to do it, and when he turns around to start to do it, he finds a book, and it's already been done. And God is confirming, that is my will. Sixth thing we see about Nehemiah is that he was detailed. Chapter 7, verses 6 to 69, records what Nehemiah found in the book. He records the census here. And as I read through this and got about halfway through, I started wondering why Nehemiah bothered to put all this in his journal. Because it's a lot of names that we don't know about and a lot of numbers of the people. But I came up with several answers. One is because Nehemiah cared about the people of Israel. And his detail reflects that. Because every one of these names and every one of these numbers represents a person that Nehemiah cared about. And so his detail is very careful because he cares about the people of Israel. 
Second thing is because these people were living links with the failure of the past and the hope of the future. They had come back out of captivity to repopulate the land of Israel. Now, our, um, well, well, for instance, this would be like the Hebrews 11 of the New Testament. Hebrews 11 tells us about men and women of faith. These were men and women of faith of the Old Testament because they had left Babylon and Persia and been willing to come back to repopulate the land of Israel. And because they did so, they put into place the possibility for all the future promises of God to be realized because all those promises revolved around Jerusalem. And so they had to be back. And so these are men and women of courage and faith. And so we have a record of their names. And even though we don't know these people by name, they are heroes from the Old Testament. And then let me give you another reason. And that is because in Jerusalem at that time, genealogy meant everything. Genealogy, our cities today are melting pots ethnically. That was not the case in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was to be for Jews only, and you had to be able to verify your genealogy to prove that you went back to a certain heritage and that was also your ticket for the future. This was like your social security number to be able to have your genealogy to verify who you were. And so it's important as he lists all these names that they understand that. Now, having said all that, I don't want to go through the entire list this morning, but I do want to point out a couple things that stand out here. If you, if you just get a handle on it, you can do so by looking at verse 7 because there he lists the leaders who brought the people back. In verses 8 to 25, he lists the people according to family names. Beginning in verse 26 through verse 38, he lists the people according to their villages, where they were living. That was very important for Nehemiah because this would tell him where they presently were living so that he could move them into Jerusalem. In verse 39, he begins to list the priests. In verse 43, the Levites. Verse 44, the singers. Now, there were 148 singers. If you slide down to verse 67, he mentions 245 more. Singers were going to have a very important role in the new city. In fact, there are 18 references in Nehemiah to singers. During the captivity children of Israel didn't sing very much. In fact, in Psalm 137, we read that during the captivity, they hung their harps on the willow trees in Babylon and wept. But now they're back in the city of Jerusalem. And now worship is going to be carried on, and singing is important, and so he lists for us the numbers of the singers. And then in verse 45, he lists the gatekeepers. Verse 46, the temple servants. Verse 57, the sons of Solomon's servants. And then in verses 61 to 65, he lists a group of people who couldn't prove their genealogy. These were people who came along, they said, we're in, we're Jews, we're part of it, and Nehemiah can't find their names. Of course, the application today would be easy, wouldn't it? So those who claim to be children of God, claim to be part of Christ's church, but maybe can't really verify it. Maybe they're really not part of that. And so Nehemiah has to deal with these people, and some of them were priests, and so they couldn't carry on the function of priests, and so he tells them that. And then in verses 
Verse 67, we see the servants of the people. Actually, these people who had been in captivity came back and slavery was so common in that day that they had slaves. And so we have mentioned here in verse 67 over 7,000 slaves that came back with them. This was probably a voluntary thing. These slaves would not have to come out of Babylon or Persia with them, Persia with them back to Israel, but apparently they liked their masters enough that they chose to come with them. And so they're listed here as well. And then in verses 68 to 69, we even have a list of the numbers of the animals. And in verse 66, we're given the total, 42,360 people. That, now, that's not a whole lot of people. That, that's talking about people. These are people who are spread out all around. They're not in the city of Jerusalem. They're all around in the villages surrounding. So that's not a whole lot of people in Israel at this time. And so Nehemiah was detailed. And the important thing here is not the count of the people. The important thing is that the people counted. And so Nehemiah had them listed because they were important to him. And then the seventh characteristic, Nehemiah was dedicated. And we see that in chapter 7, verses 70 to 72. Notice verse 70. And some from among the heads of father's households gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand gold drachmas, fifty basins, five hundred and thirty priest garments, and some of the heads of fathers' households gave into the treasury of the work twenty thousand gold drachmas and twenty two hundred silver minas, and that which the rest of the people gave was twenty thousand gold drachmas and two thousand silver minas and sixty seven priest garments. Where does the money come for the work of God? Well, it comes from the people. And here he have a, has a list of what the people gave. Now, in today's dollars, this would be about $5 million. This is a lot of money that they gave. And who is leading the way in the giving? Well, if you notice, it's the governor. And who is the governor? Well, the governor is Nehemiah. He gave a 1,000 drachmas of gold. That would be 19 pounds of gold that Nehemiah gave to the work of God. And so he led by example. He not only carried on the work, but he helped support the work of God because he was dedicated. Do you want to be effective in doing the work of God? Then you have to follow the example of Nehemiah. You have to be dependent on God, which means you have to realize that in and of yourself, apart from Him, you can do nothing, and you have to be willing by faith to step out and do things which are humanly impossible so that God can shine. You have to be dependent on Him. Secondly, you have to be discerning of the disloyal. You can't believe everything you hear. You need to be careful. Thirdly, you need to delegate to the faithful. You need to delegate responsibility to others, but make sure that those are faithful people that we give those responsibilities to. Fourthly, you need to defend against the enemy because he's always on the attack. He's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We need to be defensive. Fifth, we need to be directed by God. Like Nehemiah, we need to be sensitive to the way he leads us in his work. Sixth, we need to be detailed because people matter. And seventhly, we need to be dedicated so that we not only give our time, but we give our money to the work of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage which uh, 
really gives us some insight into Nehemiah and the way he served you. And Father, I pray as we see these, these illustrations and we see these principles, Lord, I pray that we might be able to apply them to our own lives and our own work for you, that we might accomplish that which you have given us to do for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.